So this is, of course, a clip from Star Wars The Force Awakens. I've actually been trying to find the perfect time to use a clip from this. Uh, one of the things that I love about the, the Star Wars saga is the fact that if you start at the beginning, and when I say the beginning, I mean the actual beginning, like episode four, uh, not, not the, the prequels, though you need those, right? So you start at the beginning, and initially you think the story is about Luke, this young upstart who's going to kind of fight the empire. He's going to learn some things. He's going to be this heroic person. And then as you kind of go on in the series, you realize something. There's a lot of really cool characters, a lot of, a lot of interesting people, aliens, beings, robots that you're introduced to. But before long, it becomes evident that the story isn't about any of them, really. I mean, they're important characters. But the story's actually about Darth Vader. It's Anakin Skywalker's story. And so even in this clip from The Force Awakens, you kind of, you see all of these characters, some, you know, old-timers like Han Solo who have this, this history, this role they've played, this significant role. Young people like Rey, Kylo Ren, who's the, the new kind of bad guy. And then you kind of get to see behind the curtain a little bit. And you realize that actually this is still Anakin's story. It's still about Darth Vader's legacy. It all kind of revolves around him. Well, we are continuing a series that we're calling Identity where we've been looking at kind of the five core values of our community um, at, at Koinos here. What makes us, us? Now, uh, before we kind of move on in that, a couple of quick things. Uh, Andrew had mentioned before, but just to kind of reiterate, well, first of all, my name's Tim Deal. If you're new with us, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, you, if you're not new, if you've been around for a little bit, you've probably noticed that uh, we started doing these kind of weekly emails that we're calling Connection. You get them in your inbox on Thursdays. If you don't and you'd like to, let us know. Uh, we'd love to get those to you. But basically, those are just our way of kind of helping you stay connected. Uh, it, it typically gives some kind of reminder about what we talked about here on a Sunday morning and gives you a heads up about some, some things that are coming, uh, things to kind of put on your calendar. And then there's always links to click on if you want to kind of explore some more things or if you want to contact people in regard to uh, some of the events that are coming up, those are there too. Uh, so that should be hitting your inbox uh, every Thursday afternoon. Uh, if you don't receive that and you'd like to, uh, let us know. We'd love to put you on that email list. Also, secondly, just a heads up, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but just so you know, uh, the Deacon team, uh, which is the team that is kind of in charge of pastoral care, uh, for the whole community here, um, they've started this new um, uh, initiative called Acts for Help, uh, coming kind of based in this portion of scripture in Acts chapter 4 where it talks about the early Jesus followers sharing things that they had with one another. And so they've begun this, this initiative where they want to both kind of help you if you have something that you need and then help you if you have something that you don't no longer need, but it's still in good working order that could help someone else. And so it's kind of this opportunity to connect people um, who have stuff and people who need stuff within our community. Um, and so the, the initial kind of place where this is going to happen is on Facebook. There's a group that started up. So at some point this week, 
you might get an invite to that if you're on Facebook. If, um, you, you might get invited to that group or added to that group. I, I keep using the wrong language for that. I'm sorry, I'm old. Um, but if you're interested in being a part of that and you don't get added, let us know. We'd be happy to add, add you to that group. And just so you know, that's what that is. And that'll, you know, that will be unfolding here in the coming weeks. You'll learn more about it, and, and you'll hopefully see some things posted up there. But if you have something, you know, like you're some, maybe you just bought a new washer and dryer, you bought a new lawnmower, and you have one that's, that's in good working order, but you just don't need it anymore, and, and you're kind of looking to get rid of it, uh, this could be a great outlet for that, where we can identify some people who might need that within the community, and we can connect them with you. So just so you know, those things are going on. wanted to give you a heads up to that. All right, so back to the series. Uh, we're looking at, again, the five core values that we have as a church that we've had for, for years. Uh, I'll throw them up here for you. Um, it's relational, culturally relevant, Christ-centered, authentic and honest, and approachable and open. And this morning, we're going to look at Christ-centered. You see, we have it highlighted. This is the first week I did that. I just thought of that. This as, it's the little things, right? I was like, oh, that would be cool. We should highlight it. Um, so we're looking at uh, Christ-centered this morning. And this is probably, I mean, if, if there is one that's preeminent, this would be it, right? That, that we're Christ-centered. Um, it's probably no accident that we put that in the center, right? That all of these other things kind of revolve around this. But what do we mean by that? What do we mean that, that it, we are Christ-centered? After all, we're, we are Christians. Isn't that just a given? Um, but when we say that, we mean something really particular. And, and it has some significant implications on lots of different things, but particularly on three different areas. And that's how we approach scripture, our understanding of God, and what it means to be a community of faith. So I want to unpack that a little bit this morning, talk about that, and then we'll give some time for interaction, as we always do at the end, where you can ask some questions, give some feedback, whatever. But I want to look at those three categories together. So first of all, how does being Christ-centered impact how we look at scripture? Well, when we approach the scriptures, what we find is kind of this plurality of voices from lots of different times and places and contexts talking about what God is doing in the world, how God is interacting with humans. And along the way, we meet lots of fascinating characters, people like Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, Rebecca, Rachel, Deborah, Samson, on and on and on. We meet all of these fascinating characters. And we learn some pretty significant things from their stories. But as we come along, we hit the Gospels. We hit these four biographies about this first century rabbi named Jesus. And suddenly we realize that this is his story that the entire scripture, with all of these fascinating characters, all of these remarkable insights to the human condition, flow to and from Jesus. Just like it's impossible to understand the Star Wars universe without understanding Anakin Skywalker and his story, it's impossible to understand what's really going on unless we understand that the center of this story is Jesus Christ. Everything flows to and from him. 
I want to give you an example. There, there's tons of different examples as to how this works itself out, but I want to read one from Luke's gospel. This is the, the third biography of Jesus that we come to in the New Testament. <coughs> and we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to begin at verse 16. Now, if you have uh, a Bible, you can follow along. We'll have the scriptures up here. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to invite you to grab one. We have them on the back counter before you leave this morning. Grab one, take it with you. Uh, We'd love for you to have one of those. We're going to begin at verse 16. And Jesus is coming back to his hometown, to Nazareth. Luke writes, When he, Jesus, came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes on the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Pause there for a second. So they love what Jesus is saying. He's quoting this this passage from Isaiah 61. It's one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And this is a prophecy that's given in the midst of um, Israel's Babylonian captivity. They've been exiled by this kingdom, the the Babylonians. They're they're under oppression. They've they've been removed from their nation. And they're waiting for the day when, when God would restore them. And so this prophecy is in the midst of that. It's this sign of hope. And so Jesus says to these people who are currently oppressed by the Roman Empire, not all that different from the Babylonians, who are longing to be restored, to be freed, Jesus reads this and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So of course they're going to be excited, like, all right, this guy, he's going he's to lead the charge to restoring the nation of Israel to making making us, once again, a sovereign nation, free from foreign control. They saw this as as, as an Israel-centric passage that was about their freedom from oppression, and they were excited. But Jesus goes on in response to their question about, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Uh, if we would keep reading, you'd see that they actually try to, to kill Jesus. They take him out of the town uh, to the edge of a cliff, and, and they want to throw him over the cliff. Uh, but he manages to kind of walk right by them and get away in a way that only Jesus could. 
But you see that Jesus, he kind of identifies with this passage, this, this longing for freedom. But counter to what, how the Israelites always read it, right? They always saw this as this is about us and how God frees us, redeems us, makes everything go well for us. Jesus is like, actually, this Im- this, you guys often miss this. What God is doing historically to bring freedom and hope is often received by those outside of Israel and rarely those within. This isn't just about you. In fact, you have a tendency to miss what God is doing. And they're furious. And Jesus does this over and over and over again. All through the Gospels, as you see Jesus, what is he doing? He's he's quoting the Old Testament, and he's saying, you've understood it this way, but I, it's not actu- that's not actually what God is doing. God is doing this, and he's doing it now in me. All that you thought you knew, it's kind of fully here now, in me now. This is what God is doing in the world. He defines the entire story of God through himself, the work that he's doing. He's not just a main character in the story. This is his story. The point of the story is to point us to him. Later in uh, another biography, John, he talks to some of the most studious religious people who would have had the Old Testament memorized, spent countless hours studying it. He says to them, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says, the scriptures, the whole point of the scriptures were to point you to me. They're about me. They're my story. Scholar, uh, New Testament scholar Pete Enns, says it this way. He says, Jesus is the focal point of the Christian Bible. This doesn't mean that we have to find Jesus in every verse of the Old Testament. Rather, the Bible as a whole is going somewhere. And that somewhere is actually a someone. The Bible does not exist to talk about itself. It exists to reveal who God is. The absolute center of all this is Jesus. So I was trying to think about an, an analogy for this. Like, how can we wrap our heads around this? And, and I, I apologize to all of you non-football fans. So I see a number of jerseys. I, I, you know, it's, it's week four, right? And so I, I was just, I, I, my head was in football. So many of you, and, and some of you are going to hate this analogy, I know, but we're going to use it anyway. Um, so I, I thought about Bill Belichick. Um, na- I know, I know, I heard it already, right? So... Uh, if you were listening to Sports Talk Radio at all at the end of the week, some people are leaving. <laughs> uh, you know, you know uh, there's been a lot of conversation around the Patriots. Why? Well, because, of course, you know, they're, they're 3-0 and at this point in the season, even though they're missing their Hall of Fame quarterback, quarterback, Tom Brady. And they were working on their second backup quarterback this last Thursday night when they played the Texans. And everyone thought they were going to lose. Yeah, I know, I'm losing you already. But... Uh, you know, Friday morning, as everyone's looking back and going, 
So how did the Patriots beat the Texans 27 to nothing without their Hall of Fame quarterback? And of course, the conversation went to the coach, Bill Belichick, right? Like, that it, it, it always seems to go back to the coach. That as people look back on this remarkable run that they've had since 2001, there's no doubt that Tom Brady has been a central character in that storyline. They wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. But likewise, and maybe even more so, their coach has been critical to this remarkable historic run over the last few years. Um, one, of their former patri- uh, one of their former tackles, uh, Matt Light, said in an interview with the Boston Herald, he was asked about Bill Belichick. And he said this. He said, as Tom Brady goes, sure, the Patriots are going to go as well. But if he's not there, it's not a total collapse because everything is based off the system versus the individual. And that's clear in every decision that's made. Contractually, personnel-wise, every decision is geared toward, as Bill would say, putting the best people on the field that have earned the right to play for the Patriots. So I'd say within the environment Bill has created, with the coaching staff and the next man up mentality, you don't have to worry as much about when those disasters hit. So again, no one is claiming that this team could have done what they did without some of these key players. But kind of the underlying theme throughout, why they're able to even win in these these clutch moments where they lose some of their stars is because of the coach, because of the system he's created. It all kind of goes back to him. And again, I know, it's, it's not a perfect analogy, and if you hate the Patriots, it's a horrible analogy, but, but it, this is the idea, right? Like, that in Scripture, it's not like everywhere you look, you see Jesus. But in light of Jesus, you see everything differently. That as Pete N says, that it's a story that's going somewhere and that that somewhere is a someone. That the point of this story is to point us to Jesus. That's how being Christ-centered impacts how we approach the scripture. Now it also uh, impacts how we approach our view of God himself. Jesus says, uh, again in, in John's gospel, in John chapter 14, verse 9, it's a real short verse. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God looks like, sounds like, acts like? You look at Jesus. When God wanted to show up and reveal himself, he did it in Jesus. So everything we know about God comes primarily through our understanding of Jesus. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr says it this way. He says, Jesus taught us what God is like through his words, his actions, his very being, making it clear that God is love, from 1 John 4, 8. If God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is on our side. So Rohr is saying that understanding God through the person of Jesus drastically impacts how we come to know God and understand God. Like, for many of us, 
even though we wouldn't say this, we still almost have this kind of Zeus-like picture of what God is like, right? He's this, this kind of bearded warrior king who sits on a throne and kind of give, gives orders, makes good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. We might not articulate that, but somewhere in our head that, that image still exists. But in Jesus, that completely, that gets annihilated. That is not the God that Jesus reveals. The God that Jesus reveals is fundamentally a God of love who changes how we understand not just what God is like, but what that means for our place in the world. And when we begin to understand God through Jesus, we suddenly begin to understand why Jesus can say things that sound crazy, like, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And if even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, I'm sorry, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. And then later, followers of Jesus, like Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, can say things like this out of his letter to the Philippians. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, how can Jesus tell us not to worry? And Paul, who spent lots of time in prison, eventually was executed for his faith, for his, his preaching of the message of Jesus. How can they say things like, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be afraid? Well, because in Jesus, we come to see that God is love, that the core of the, the source of all things, the nature of the universe, is self-giving love, seen ultimately in Jesus' death and resurrection. And when we come to realize that, that that is what God is like, that God is fundamentally loving, and that his love is so powerful that even when the worst happens, when death comes, that love is more powerful than even death, then suddenly we're able to live without fear. We're able to engage with life without anxiety, without worry. That is the God that Jesus reveals to us. Or as Dallas Willard said, I know it's a quote, heavy morning. He said, Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Many of us operate as though this world is terrifying. And granted, there's a lot of scary things out there. But the God that Jesus reveals invites us to understand that this world is actually a very safe place within which we can live because he is with us and he is love. And if the worst happens, love conquers death. So we don't have to be afraid. So having a Christ-centered view of scripture, of God, dramatically changes the way we approach things. But it also affects the way we approach thinking about community. 
Um, <coughs> so there are different ways that we can form categories in our mind, um, and there are kind of two primary ways that that kind of tend to be engaged, particularly when we think around uh, like religious things, spiritual communities, and how communities get formed. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try and draw these. I have not practiced this, so this may go bad really, really fast. But we're gonna try it. Um, so the first one is called a bounded set. These are not completely um, new categories probably for most of you. So it's called a bounded set. And the way uh, we think about kind of uh, making communities or, or organizing things with a bounded set is that you have, we'll use a circle, right? There's a boundary. And there are things, people inside of the boundary and there are things, people, outside of the boundary, right? And so, um, you know, an example that's often used is that of apples. So apples are a bounded set. We know what an apple is. You know, it's a, it's a fruit that grows on a tree. Uh, it has seeds, has skin, usually firm, fleshy, uh, typically sweet or sour kind of to taste. Uh, there can be variation within that, uh, but not much, right? I mean, even though there can be some variation in color, there can be red and green and maybe even pink apples, um, yellow apples, but they're still mostly like identifiable as an apple. We know what apples are, and we also know what not apples are, right? Like we can pretty quickly identify a banana as a non-apple um, based on some of those criteria. So it's pretty easy to know kind of what goes in and what goes out. Well, communities can often get shaped by that too, right? Where the focus is kind of the boundary and it's kind of identifying who, who's in and who's out. And often how that works in, in community is by kind of identifying people inside by kind of sameness, similarities. Like we all kind of agree about these same ideas and we're really clear on the ideas that we all agree about. We all kind of tend to be similar to one another and are clearly identifiable by some of these similar traits tends to be static, right? Like, the, the point is, being in here, once you're in here, not much change happens. It's kind of a static existence. The point is to be inside. That, that's one way of viewing how you would kind of, you know, organize a community. Another way is called centered set. Um, now, in a centered set, there's th the community, the, the items are organized around a central thing. There's, there's an organizing principle. And so, again, if, uh, if we're going to use kind of a, uh, th there's not a lot of really great kind of other analogies for this because, um, particularly in our culture, we think in, in binary terms so much. Um, but for a, a centered set, if we're going to talk about communities, particularly faith communities, the way this would be organized is, like, let's say I'll use a, a cross. That's a kind of a really bad cross, but you get it. Um, as the center, the, organi the organizing principle is this center point, right? So Jesus here. Belonging is determined not so much by inside and outside, but on movement. Are you moving to or from? And so there are people who I continue to 
illustrate by X's for some unknown reason. Um, all over the place, right? But the question is not, are you like, like where are you? The question is, what direction are you moving, right? And so you can be relatively far away and be moving towards Jesus. You can be relatively close and be moving away. And the point, well, that was horrible. And the point is not necessarily where you are, but where you're going. We see this in the Gospels, where Jesus would encounter people who were really schooled in the scriptures. They knew the scriptures really well. And yet they completely missed him. They had no idea that something significant was happening. In fact, they collaborated in his death. So they were really close in terms of kind of knowing God's stuff, but they were moving in a completely different direction. And then we come to people, there's a story of, of a woman who was completely kind of ostracized, marginalized, shamed, who comes to Jesus and, and breaks this really ex expensive bottle of perfume over his head and, and washes his feet with her tears. And all of his disciples, all of his closest followers are scandalized by this. Like, how can you let this woman touch you? And Jesus just says, you don't get it. She does. She's far away, but she's moving in the right direction. And so when it comes to thinking about being a, a centered set kind of community, a, a Christ-centered community, we're looking together to move towards Jesus. But we're all in really different places on that journey. And that's okay. In fact, that's really good. One of the things I love about this community is the fact that people are in really different places in their journey. People have really different perspectives about things. And that's really important. That's really valuable. No two people in this community look exactly the same. But together, we're trying to move towards Jesus. And that's the point. And so when we talk about being a centered set community, we're, we're kind of talking about being a community in which all of us together from our very different places are moving in the same direction. It kind of goes back to the Luke passage where those who were listening to Jesus initially were really excited about what he was saying because they thought it was about them. They thought this is about the people of Israel, this bounded set community, this ethnically identifiable group of people. But Jesus said, actually, no. This group of people frequently misses it because you think it's just about you being in the club. But it's really about anybody who's open to coming. Anybody from anywhere moving in this direction. And it infuriated them. So when we talk about being a Christ-centered community, we mean that in terms of how we look at the scriptures, how we look at God, and how we look at community. 
this is who we, we want to be, it's who we are, it's who we're striving to be more and more each day. A community that's centered on the person of Jesus. And we think it's really critical because it, understanding Jesus as the center helps us filter out things that can otherwise be really destructive for us. I recently learned about something called a riparian buffer. Some of you may be familiar with this if you are kind of agricultural geeks. Yeah, I like that. Um, <clears throat> I knew about this before, but I didn't know the name. Um, I know uh, um, my brother and sister-in-law uh, own a farm, and uh, they had kind of put in some, some trees near a, a, a creek, and I knew they had done that for, you know, to kind of um, provide some, uh, what do I want to say, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, some shade, and they, they, they were doing it, for the sake of some conservation efforts? Yeah, I'm, I know, I'm, I'm doing a horrible job here. I hadn't planned on saying that part. So I knew that that thing existed. But later, I was talking to a friend of mine who was talking about a stream that flowed in his backyard, and he said, oh, yeah, I want to put in a riparian buffer. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. What is that? And so he said, well, it's this conservation, it's this thing in the conservation kind of effort movement uh, that's been around for a while where basically what you do is you plant trees, you plant, uh, you, you know, um, hedges, brush, uh, bushes, different kinds of, um, of plants that will provide a, a root system, among other things. It also provides shade and some things like that, but provide a, a root system that filters out pesticides and other nutrients that might come into the water and pollute it and hurt the, the, the life, plants, animals, etc. And so this, natural, this forms a natural buffer, a natural barrier that filters out pollutants that would be destructive to the life of the creek. And this is kind of what being Christ-centered does for us. It forms a really helpful filter for things that would otherwise be destructive in our lives in terms of how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. So, for example, you might want to seek God out, but fear that it's an exercise in futility because, of course, God is distant, and you're just you. Jesus reveals a God who wants to be known, who comes close, who shows up in the everyday. Maybe you want to seek out God, but fear that you've gone too far. You're too messed up. You've made too many mistakes. You've done too many horrible things. But Jesus shows us a God who is regularly dining with tax collectors and sinners, who welcomes back with open arms the rebellious child who comes home. Maybe you think that what it means to be a, a follower of Christ is to know a lot of stuff, to have a lot of Bible knowledge. But Jesus shows us one who challenges those who have the most Bible knowledge. That it's not just about how much knowledge you can acquire, though that stuff can be helpful. It can become a barrier to learning what it means to live life in love. Or maybe again, we find the world a fear, fearful place. But if we look at Jesus, he reminds us that we don't need to be anxious because we are worth more than many sparrows. And on and on and on, there's, there's a tendency, there's an, 
There's an ability when we look at Jesus to filter out some of our misinformed understandings about who God is and what it looks like for us to relate to God in the world. So for those of us who want to know our creator and discover the life we were made for, staying Christ-centered filters out the destructive stuff and reveals to us who God is, how we're to understand scripture, and how we're to do life together. So I think that's, that's us as a community. That's what that means for us. But I think there's some individual takeaways. There's some things that we can do individually if we're trying to explore, like, what does it look like to make to explore like a Christ-centered life for myself. So a couple of thoughts, a couple of things you can think about. Number one, if this is something you're interested in exploring more, this idea of seeing Jesus as the center, um, I would encourage you to read the Gospels. Now maybe that's a duh, but uh, in the Bible, we find the four biographies of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are four stories, four four biographies of Jesus' life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. Spend time in the Gospels. Immerse yourself in those texts. And as you come to know Jesus in the Gospels, you will come to understand what God is like. Spend time reading the Gospels. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of really great stuff in Scripture that, that I encourage you to read, you should be reading. I always try, no matter what I'm reading at any given time, I always try to be reading it in concert with one of the Gospels because it keeps me grounded. It reminds me in those moments when I'm reading some kind of crazy story in the Old Testament, and I'm like, wow, how do I wrap my mind around this? It keeps me grounded in Jesus and who God shows me to be in Jesus still have to wrestle with some of those things. It doesn't mean we just say, ah, still wrestle with some of that. But we understand that the questions we have about God are fully answered in the person of Jesus. So spend some time in the Gospels, reading the Gospels for yourself. Secondly, <clears throat> I would encourage you, if you really want to grow in this kind of Christ-centered way of seeing the world, get to know someone really well, and there's lots of them here, Get to know someone really well who's committed to following Christ but is really different than you. Really different from you. Socioeconomically, um, you know, ethnically, has a really different background, comes from maybe a different part of the country. Spend some time with someone who just sees the world very different from you. Maybe, maybe they're kind of particularly progressive and you're conservative or vice versa. And don't get, in, like, don't get sidetracked in like, talking politics or, or kind of social stuff, because that can be just frustrating, right? Talk about faith. Talk about how your faith impacts the decisions you make. It's remarkable how much we assume that we have this completely objective view, right? That the way I understand God, Jesus, life, is the way that any informed person who would read and be open to anything would understand it. Right? Like, like anybody who's intelligent and, and informed would see it the way I see it. That's just what we assume. You might not say that, but we think it. But then you talk to someone else who's really open, really informed, really wanting to know, and they land at a different spot than you. Those can be really helpful conversations. 
So I encourage you, if this is something that you, you really want to grow in, find somebody who's really different than you, sees the world very differently, that you're convinced if you had a political conversation, it might kind of devolve into a fistfight. And don't talk to them about politics, but talk to them about faith. I think it would be really good for you. And finally, and this could help you with both of those things, I really think you should be a part of a community group. Now, I know not everybody's schedule works for this, and, you know, community group's not necessarily for everyone, but I think for most of us, we need a place where we can come together around Scripture and wrestle with it, not just with people who think the way that we think, with people who maybe have a different perspective, who can challenge us, who can say things that we've never thought of before. And this is what we try and do in community group. If you're new, community group are these small groups that meet every other Sunday in people's homes. We look at Scripture together. Right now, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And usually it's a bunch of people in the room who are really different than one another. And that brings a real richness to the perspective. So I encourage you, if you're not a part of one and this is something that that is compelling to you, uh, to consider joining a community group. All right, so I want to close with a final quote, and then we're going to interact a little bit. Andrew will have a mic here. Um, This quote is from Dallas Willard. Again, he's an author that we quote often. He says... The key, then, to loving God is to see Jesus, to hold him before the mind with as much fullness and clarity as possible. It is to adore him. The key, then, to loving God is to see Jesus. Um, So I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they do, I just invite you to stand. um, And you can feel free to... You close your eyes, you can leave them open, what, whatever you're comfortable with. And I'm going to kind of pray this over us as a blessing. Christ be with you, Christ within you, Christ behind you, Christ before you, Christ beside you, Christ to win you, Christ to comfort and restore you, Christ beneath you, Christ above you, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love you, Christ in mouth of friends.